Well, we're continuing our series through 1 Samuel in chapter 19. And we're continuing to really have in our focus King Saul. And what a turbulent reign he's had. What a difficult journey it is following him. It starts off so hopeful, with so much potential, and then we see this pride creeping in and starts to pollute his soul and take over his really identity. And where at once he was humble and afraid to even go up and be in front of the people, where he takes a step of leadership and brings victory and now gets the people to be a part and supporting him, Suddenly there's a shift when there's a feeling of threat to him. We talked about pride, how pride is always competitive. And as soon as this kid, really, David comes onto the scene, and the women were singing about David killing his tens of thousands, but Saul only killed his thousands, we saw that he kept an eye on David. And it wasn't a good eye. It was like, hey, who do you think you are? I'm the king. And as that took place, we saw that not only from the time that Samuel anointed David before the whole Goliath thing to, to be king, and after he had already told Saul, the kingdom is taken away from you because you were disobedient. That time when Samuel told him, don't bring back anything the Lord has told you, and he brought back the king, he brought back the best of the spoils. And we saw that it was because he wanted the approval of the men. And God said, no, the kingdom is gone. David is anointed. We see the leadership of David as he goes and confronts Goliath. Leadership in that here was a, a young man of faith, willing to believe in God against the circumstances that were in front of him, which was a giant. And then there's the knitting of Jonathan and David's heart together. As they are both men of faith. Both men who step out into circumstances that are difficult, into a place of basically danger, but trust in God. And as we continue now to look at Saul, this darkness that is overtaking him begins to influence everything that he does. And first three verses we'll read. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Saul's pride has moved him to rage. He's tried to pin David with a spear a number of times, and now he just finally tells, I want you guys to kill David. Oh my gosh. What, what's happened here? What has David done that deserves this? And what we see taking place, bless you, what we see taking place here is that Saul's behavior is now actually affecting his relationship with his own son. That bad behavior has a casualty of relationships. If you don't conduct yourself in the right way, then your relationships will suffer because of that, especially those who are closest to you. And so, here Jonathan is now keeping secrets from his dad because his dad's gone off the deep end. It's like, I can't, we can't kill David. I know David. He's, he's good. And so now Jonathan is maintaining integrity. He's doing what is right according to God's standards, God's law, and just period. And the king, the one who's supposed to be leading, is failing, his conduct moved by his jealousy, moved by his pride, is wanting to kill an innocent man. Why? Because of his feeling threatened. 
Remember in verse 28 of chapter 18, Saul became still more afraid of him. Why did he come, become more afraid? Because God was with him. Because David was blessed. The things that he did were successful, and that frightened Saul. Because it threatened his position. And when people want to hold on to a position and care little about the people, it's a dangerous thing. Whether it's a position as a CEO, as a king, as a pastor, a position is never more important than people. But Saul, it's all about holding on to this. And so he wants to, to kill David. He wants to destroy him. And so, why did Jonathan step up? Well, first of all, him and David had this kindred spirit. They'd already been at battle together. We saw that Jonathan had given his, his bow, his sword, his, his cloak. He basically told David, hey, I'm not worried about the kingdom. In fact, I see anointing on you, and I recognize your authority. And so David and him had this closeness. And remember, people help people they like. I always tell my kids that when they're on the phone talking to someone or when they have to go to DMV or whatever. Just remember this, or airline to get tickets. People help people they like. And so if you act like a jerk, the odds are they're not going to be so helpful. But if they actually like you, let's see what we can do about that. And it's great. Hey, yeah, I'm great. But if they don't like you, I'm sorry. Well, you didn't even look. I'm sorry. <laughs> they just shut the door. And so this relationship between David and Jonathan is proving to have its worth. It's got benefits. It saved his life. And so we can't minimize the importance of these relationships. How important people are. How important it is to treat people the right way. Because one day, you might have to call that person up for a favor. How you conducted yourself and treated them really does matter, especially when you're in a position of authority. And this is a lesson I have learned the hard way. I have failed at this so many times. I've been in positions of authority, and sometimes I've done well. Sometimes I've been a jerk, just to be honest. And let's move on. <laughs> But it's important to see that this relationship did have the dividends here. As Jonathan actually now comes to his father, verse 4, and Jonathan speaks to him and he says, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him. Now remember, what he's standing before the king who just said, gave him a decree, I want to kill David. This is, this is tender ground here. He's got to watch his step, but he says this in a very wise way. Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason. Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath, took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought, brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. And so Jonathan pleads David's case. We know Saul wasn't in a good frame of mind, but Jonathan was courageous enough to stand up and confront Saul. Do you notice anything about what Jonathan says to Saul that's there that maybe is helpful in why Saul listened? Are there any things there in these verses? Because he said it benefited Saul. Right? It benefited you? Anything else? The Lord, won the, the Lord won the victory. We see that he's appealing to, really, Saul's position. 
he's, he's not taking away from Saul. He says, he has not wronged you. In fact, he has benefited you. In fact, he has won a victory for all Israel. And so all of his comments to Saul are really benefits to Saul. He's buttering him up. He really is. He's saying, hey, this has been good for you. You saw how he did this. People are supporting this. You were glad about it. He's appealing to him and where he's at, which is very smart. Notes. You should be taking notes. You have managers or bosses. <laughs> this is wise in how he is pleading. The only mention he actually has of David is that he risked his own life. And so Jonathan is doing everything to put Saul's frame of mind on David as being a help for himself. He's not saying, man, David's great. Everybody loves him. See, that would have been true, but that would have got his head because he knew Saul's frame of mind. No, David is good for you. Everyone in Israel is glad because of what he's done for them, and you were glad too. Remember, he's benefited you, the king. And so he's appealing to them. And then Saul is moved by his son, and he gives this oath. And he says, he will not harm David. He took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives. Now think about this. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. We'll see about that. We'll see how this stands with him. And so Saul makes this oath. He comes to his senses, so to speak. Jonathan goes out, gets David, brings him back. David now comes back in the presence of the man who wanted to kill him. Talk about tension. You ever gone to work and you know the boss doesn't like you? Yeah, that's one thing. But when the boss wants to kill you, that's another thing. And when the boss is king, okay, this is authority times, you know, ten. And so you get to go back in there and, okay, everything good? Yeah. Okay, good. And so they continue. They, they move on. Things were as they were before. Verse 8. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in the house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. So much for his oath. It lasted who knows how long. Then there it is. And you can imagine, while Saul, I mean, while David's playing his harp, as soon as Saul reaches for the spear. It's like, okay, you know, okay, keep an eye on the spear. Look what I'm playing. Okay, here it comes. This is the, you know, third time we see this phrase, the evil spirit from the Lord, and we see again Saul trying to pin David with the spear. Now, every time we see this phrase, an evil spirit from the Lord, it is after a revelation of Saul's heart condition. And it's important, again, to recognize this. When it says an evil spirit from the Lord, it comes after we see that Saul has purposely tried to kill David. We see even here that the things that caused Saul to be jealous in the first place, which was David's victory, have taken place. And so it always happens as a result of what has already happened in the person. And so this isn't God saying, yeah, I'm going to just throw an evil spirit on you. This is God responding to what the condition is in a way that is going to further God's position. God is not making Saul do something that he didn't want to do. This was actually what was already in Saul to do. And we talked about the idea of from the Lord, God is basically taking responsibility for everything even the actions that this person does. And the evil spirit is a troubling spirit that came upon him, and they just attributed it. It came from somewhere, so it's always considered just God. That's how it was looked at. And so here's this idea of, okay, 
he's troubled again. Something's wrong with this guy, and he tries to kill David one more time, and this time David again escapes. He loots him, and he runs off. And as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. That was his own words. How could he, in such a short time, go against his own words? Has anyone here ever said something and then gone against it? Just gay. <laughs> I promise I'll never do that again. What happens? <sighs> happens again. Why? You promised. You said you wouldn't. It's telling us something. It's telling us about the condition of our own hearts. It's helping us to see our own frame and our own weaknesses. And what happens is, what happened here with Saul is, you know, he had the clarity of mind when Jonathan was talking to him. He said, you know, it makes no sense to kill this man, David. He's done nothing but good for me and for the kingdom. Surely as the Lord lives, he will not be put to death. When that jealousy rises up in him, when that pride takes up, it just clouds his reason, and it clouds his thinking, and pretty soon it dominates his focus. And he knows what's right, but what he desires is wrong, and he makes the wrong choice. And that's always the case with us. We know it's right to hold our word and keep it. We know it's right to be these people of integrity and our promises should be kept. But when our minds get clouded and we desire something, we love something else, we make the wrong choices and we give in to those desires, even when we know they're wrong. It's not like Saul said, well, you know, this is, this is wrong, yeah, I shouldn't do it. He didn't think, well, now it's right. He just didn't care. And you see, that's the, the problem, isn't it? You know, if you're having an issue with whatever it is, anger, drugs, pornography, you know, whatever it is, you've got an issue with that, and you, you don't all of a sudden say, you know, it's okay. It's okay to get mad, lose my temper. Yeah, it's okay. You don't think that. You don't think anything. You just do it. In fact, when the thought comes in, hey, you better watch it, you just shut up the door, you just do the, you, put your, you close your mind to what is true because of what you want to do. And so the way we change our behavior is by developing a want for the right things, learning to love things the right way. See, it's not like you have to know more of how wrong this is. If I had more information to know how bad drugs are for my body, then I would stop to No. People who do drugs, most of them know exactly how bad it is. I can remember a, a young man coming up to me and telling me, I am going to die because of this. Because of the drug use that I am using and, and he knew the scriptures. He had gone to Teen Challenge and he was one of their spokespersons for years. And he came out of that and he knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. And there was a period of a few years where he was doing great. But when I saw him, he was back in the midst of it. And he told me, I know that the choices I make are going to kill me. It's what I want to do. What are you saying? You, you plead, stop, don't, call me, do, do what, let, what can I do to help you? Can I get you in a place? No, this is what I want to do. And the only way you could stop him from making that choice is by him choosing to love something more Otherwise, he was going to destroy himself, and he did. He ended up 
contracting AIDS. He moved out of state, and I haven't heard from him since. I believe he's passed. And he was right. It's going to kill me. And it did. The only way to get rid of this blindness is by loving the right thing. That's why Jesus' words, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself are so important. Jesus didn't say, don't lie to one another, don't deceive one another. That is the greatest commandment. Do not commit adultery. That is the greatest commandment. Do not do... It wasn't that it was to love. Because if you love God more than you love whatever else it is, it will make the decision. And so when you find yourself confronted with a weakness and a, a, a sin in your life that you've given into, know this, that at that moment you love that more than you love your what's right, more than you love what God cares about. Now that's hard to think and hard to confess, but it's true. God knows it's true. We're just acknowledging it. He says, hey, you're choosing this over me right now. Just admit it doesn't mean I'm banished to hell. I just admit it. There was a time when we were on vacation. And we were down at the beach. My family, my kids were all small. My wife, my mom, Bob, cousins. We had this big family vacation. We'd go down to the beach every year down to Newport. We were there and having a great time. And there was a softball game. It was a Sunday. And it, we were in the championships, and so I wanted to go play softball. And my wife looked at me and said, you shouldn't go. I said, no, it's okay, we're in the championships, it's all right, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And I went. And during the game, I was on first base, and I was taking the lead, and they threw the ball. There was a line drive actually hit second base, and I was starting to run off. And then I saw the line drive, so I had to dive back to first base. Dove back, sprained my shoulder. Oh, no. I was driving back home, and my arm's feeling like it's falling off. And I'm thinking, I can fake it. She'll never know. <laughs> Couldn't fake it. My arm was so dead. I couldn't raise it like this without just being in wrench and pain. We had to go to emergency. My wife was upset with me. And you see, what I did is I chose softball over that evening with my family. I did. I can't paint it in any picture. I, I can try, I can spill my words, but the choice is that's what I chose over spending with my family. And my wife will say I got what I deserve. <laughs> she did many times. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to own the decisions we make and call them what they are. Now, I loved this more than this. I chose this over this. God, I choose this over Because that's confession. That's honesty. First John 1 9, if anyone confess their sin, the word confess means to be in agreement. If you will agree and acknowledge, yeah, this is exactly what happened. What does it say God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness? And so here we see Saul blinded. Why he wanted to be. And the evil spirit from the Lord was only a condition that was already there in his heart. There's nothing new taking place here. Verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. Interesting. <laughs> when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, He is ill. 
Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in this bed so that I may kill him. When the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Nicole, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Nicole told him. He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? So we see again the the effects of Saul's madness are now not only on his son, but also now on one of his daughters. Now, she is lying to him. And there's a few things that should stand out to you in this passage. Anyone wonder about a couple of things here? Huh? The idol. What's with that? Now... The word that's used here, it might say an idol or it might say an image in other translations. The word is a, a teraphim. And what this was was a figurine that was used as a household idol or a fertility good luck charm. We saw it with Rachel and Jacob's wife in Genesis 31. And it's basically this kind of, this is going to help me to have children. That was it. So... Is that okay? Is it okay to have one of those in your house? And it must be pretty good size, because she was able to put it in the bed, right, to make it look like David. So it's not this little, you know, St. Christopher thing on the dashboard. He's not a saint anymore, isn't he? Didn't he get kicked out? Yeah, he got, anyway. And so here is this image, this idol that's probably pretty big, at least big enough to give the illusion someone there, at least big enough to put goat's hair on the head and make it look like something. You know, they probably had different sizes. You know, how you get Buddhas, they're small ones in some backyard or whatever. It was probably pretty decent size. What's it doing there? Did David not see it? Had to. It was pretty good size. Did he not say anything? No. It wasn't until later, I think it was Josiah the king, that started going through and saying, enough, get rid of all of this. But until this time, there was this flirting with this idolatry. You know, this good luck charm. And it's amazing how superstitious we can be. I mean, superstitions come up in different ways. You know, don't look at the, the lightning, or you'll get warts. Anyone ever heard that one? <laughs> well, it worked because I got a wart. <laughs> you know, or if you dance, it'll rain. You know that works every time. Sometimes you have to dance for one day. Sometimes you have to dance for three months, but it always works. <laughs> See, we believe the things that we want to believe, and the superstitions. It's amazing. Oh, don't say that. Why not? Because then it'll happen to you. Those kinds of things. I remember my grandfather was just not a superstitious person. I didn't think not a religious person at all. But I remember he saw a bird one time and he swore this bird was the soul of some person. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's weird. And here's this person who I thought was rational. And all of a sudden, where did this come from? You know, and it's amazing the things that people will believe in. These are my lucky numbers. I'm going to win the lottery. <laughs> How long have you been playing your lucky numbers? <laughs> have the lucky yet. And so here's this idol in the middle of the household of a man who is anointed by God. Something to cry about. <laughs> you know, and and it's it's interesting and it's revealing, and it's real life. This is how it is. And we see it twice, and then we see McCall actually lie to her dad. She says, he said, let me get it. No, it was her idea. Right? And then she says, he was going to kill her. He threatened me. And so now she's covering her own skin. She's making sure she doesn't get in trouble, which is what kids do. Especially if you have more than one, they always do that. It was the other one. And, and just letting you guys know, until you have more than one kid, 
It's just not the same. Because when you have two, then they have they have leverage. You see, when you go in there and you find the broken glasses in the kitchen, and you can say, why'd you do this? They can't blame the dog, usually. It's usually okay there. But once there's one other kid in there, you never know. You'll never know. Who did this? I don't know. I don't know. It's a poltergeist. We have we have ghosts here. They break the glasses and no one knows. I digress. Anyway. And so we see again that there's the casualty of the relationship of Saul's behavior. We see that there is idolatry already, and this is going to give us insight into McCall later on, because remember Saul said that she would be a snare to David. Well, maybe he knew about some of her attitudes and things. Maybe. We don't know. Verse 18, when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left Ramah and went to the great cistern at Teku. He asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said, so Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why the people say, Saul also among the prophets. Bizarre. Right? That's, that's some strange stuff going on here. So, What's going on? Any ideas? Or oh, she's not happy. <laughs> Any idea what what's going on here? Why why these guys go there and they're prophesying. And then some other guys go and they start prophesying. And then some more guys go, and they start prophesying. And Saul goes, and he's not only prophesied, but he strips his clothes, see Jason. Oh. No worries, huh? We're sorry. Okay, so, so it might have been just... That's confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, definitely see God's plan was to give David a way of escape. That was his purpose. Why this, and, and what does it look like? This is some strange stuff. And any other thoughts on this before I, I start just sharing some things that I don't know about? Saul <laughs> yes. just seems like he's in turmoil. Like he has this inner conflict of God's spirit, and then his just his um his own yeah. just his natural self of wanting to do what he wants to do. His jealousy and all of that mm-hmm. evil that. Remember too, this happened to Saul. I think back in chapter ten or something. They said they saw him prophesying at one point. It's actually happened a few times where we've seen this happen. And one of the times, the word again is just babbling. But here it seems to be directly from God, or at least it says the Spirit of God came over him. There are two basic thoughts that I've read in a number of commentaries that I've been reading on this. It's like, okay, someone give me something. And then they give me two different things. It's like, that's not what I wanted. I wanted something. But one of them was basically that this was just confusion to cause uh, David to get away. It was just babbling that it wasn't necessarily 
prophetic utterance from God. And then another group says that, no, it was the Spirit of God coming upon them, overwhelming them, as the Spirit of God was heavy upon them. They recognized it, they were influenced by it, and they gave into that. There's a couple of things that have happened. They're in Genesis chapter 11. We see the Tower of Babel being built. And as the Tower of Babel is being built, God says, let us go down and confuse their languages. Otherwise, they'll be able to do anything they want. In other words, they'll be able to just continue ignoring me. They'll be kind of a solidarity amongst themselves. And so God went and confused the language. And so he brought this confusion on them so that they could no longer communicate to each other, and he confounded their work. And so we see God intervening there. We see God intervening with Saul, when Saul is heading to Damascus, and the light knocks him down, and he blinds him, and all of a sudden, Saul is confronted by God, and he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're trying to <clears throat> stop and hinder. And so there's times where God confuses and confounds and stops and intervenes. He has the right to do things. But notice a couple of things. One, Saul did not change who he was, even after he did this. So whether it was a confounding just babbling, or whether it was actually the Spirit of God coming upon him and giving him utterances of God, the results were the same. David escaped, and Saul did not change. And so, even when God intervenes physically in a tangible way, it does not change the heart of the person. The person is still responsible to make their decisions and make their own choice. Saul of Tarsus made the change to be a follower of Christ. This Saul did not. When God showed up, intervened, and brought this confusion, they were overwhelmed. It overpowered them. But then they continued to be the same people they were. But it was also the opportunity for them to become someone else. Think about Pharaoh in Egypt. When the plagues came, wouldn't all the blood be, or water being turned to blood, be enough for you to say, Uncle, go? Or do you need the frogs and the locusts and all these other things? Why did it take one after another after another? Every one of those was an opportunity for them to stop and say, okay, I'm not going to fight against God anymore. Even Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, and he does miracle after miracle, wouldn't you think seeing one person raised from the dead would be enough to change your mind? One person who was lame from birth, being now able to walk, feeding 5,000. But instead of recognizing who Jesus is, they had to attribute it to demons. It's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he does these miracles. They couldn't deny the miracles, but they couldn't change their mind. Even when they were confronted, so like Pharaoh, like the Pharisees, Saul here is overwhelmed, I believe, with the presence of God as this group of men are prophesying, maybe even women, there with Samuel. And as they are prophesying and declaring these people come in there and they are overwhelmed with it. And they began to be a part of it. And Saul's finally going to come fix things. He goes there and he's overwhelmed with it, so pretty soon he's on the ground. And it doesn't mean he was completely naked, but he stripped his outer clothes off, is most likely what happened. But either way, it's just bizarre. And then he's there on the ground all day, all night, and the people say, is he also one of the prophets? One of those religious guys? He was there all day, overwhelmed by God. What do you do when you wake up after that, when you get up, 
with this prophecy hangover, whatever's going on. You, you, you get up and you've got to move forward. Where does your mind go? When you've just been thwarted by God himself. You know, it, it's amazing. This young man that I was just telling you about. I remember actually hearing about him, who's Colleen, who said, hey, I met this guy, he used to work with you. And the day before, I had just thought about him. I wonder what ever happened to Wayne. But yeah, I remember what happened. I wonder what happened. I remember he went to Team Challenge. I wonder, and then Colleen said, hey, I met this guy, he used to work with him. His name's Wayne. He wants to talk with you. And I was like, oh my gosh. And she told me he wasn't in a good state, and so I was thinking, this is it. God has brought him here, has prepared my mind, and it's not a coincidence. These are two worlds coming together and crashing at this time because God has ordained it. And so I'm waiting to talk to Wayne, and I'm expecting miracles. I'm expecting God to do something incredible. Why else would God do this? And sure enough, I get there. And we have an incredible talk, but he doesn't change. He stays the same. And I remember thinking, God, why? How, how could this happen? You, you, you've planted these steps after years. You brought our paths together just at this time when I was thinking, and just as a time when he needs something more, and I can... Give him some things to help him. And I was able to help in, in some areas, but not the way he needed help. And some people, even when that happens, even when God does the miraculous, even when it's too, too strange to be coincidence, the person still has to make a decision. This happened last night. Talking to someone who's going through uh, divorce. And it's been traumatic for him. And he was thinking about his wife, who's now with someone else. And as he was thinking about her, she texted him. At the moment, he was thinking about her and said, Hi, how are you? And even though it's been a period of time, he just broke down crying. And he, I was telling him, what, what, what's going on? What are you thinking? He goes, I don't, I don't like what I think it means. I said, what do you think it means? He said, I think it means that I'm supposed to still be with you, but I don't want to. I told him, you know what? There's nowhere in Scripture where love is anything but the decision that someone makes. Love isn't predestined. And it isn't fate. It's a decision. And maybe what this is, is a snapshot revealing to you what's happening. There's still pain. There's still healing that needs to take place. Instead of you making it a sign that, well, I guess I'm supposed to still be married, maybe you can just take it as a sign of, wow, I'm still injured by this. And be aware of it because the decisions you make now, you can make this understand. And you see, when God brings things, and, and you know, you start wondering, was that God bringing this text at this time, or was this Satan? You guys ever been there? It's like, who are you doing this? Is this spirit of God causing prophecy, or is this the evil spirit of God causing madness? What the heck is going on here? Maybe it's just a snapshot 
that allows us to then make our mind up of what we are going to do. We can either be Pharaoh, Pharisees, King Saul, or we can be Saul of Tarsus. When the presence of God and the power of God brings a situation that is divine, it's an opportunity for us to pause and say, okay, what am I going to do with this? Saul did nothing. That man Wade did nothing. Pharaoh did nothing. Pharisees, most of them, did nothing. Saul, Tarsus, he became Paul. What are we going to do? Who are we going to be when God does the miraculous in our life? How are we He doesn't change Saul. Saul has to decide himself. Because we know he doesn't change. That's what I got out of this. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense. If it resonates at all. Any thoughts on this passage that stand out to you or any questions? I have a bunch. I was um, wondering just about McCall, giving her an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe she was very fearful of her father since he was a madman, you know? Like, maybe she was just afraid that he was going to kill her if she, she, he knew that Mm -hmm. she was helping um, David. David, Well, Jonathan liked it, Saul, too. Yeah. She definitely. <laughs> well, we see a lot of deception here. We see lying taking place, much like what happened with Rahab and Jericho when she lied about the spies. Is that wrong? They were protecting someone. You know, the way you tell if something is wrong or not is by what God deems is right. In other words, it's not that the end justifies the means, it's that God justifies the means. You know, if someone were to run in here who was, you know, uh, going to be uh, beaten by a gang of thugs, you know, if a young kid came running in here and says, I got these guys, they're going to beat me up, what can you do? And we say, okay, go hide by Lawrence, you know. (laughs) And then this gang of thugs comes running in here and says, did you see a kid? And I think, well, I don't want to lie. Yeah, he's there by Lawrence. <laughs> See, that'd be, that'd be evil. That would be wrong. God cares about the kid being beaten by thugs. He, he went up to 13th Street over by the police station. You know? It wouldn't be wrong to steer them away from doing evil. It's not that, oh, you're lying. No, you're, you're protecting what's right. There's a difference. And it's not so much that the ends, it's that I'm doing something that is important to God, and that's protecting a person who's innocent. Okay? That's the means. It's not just the end. You know, I, I can't, I mean, the whole idea of the ends justify the means um, would be really more than an eye for an eye. The idea of an eye for an eye was to limit the retribution, not to get even. And so the ends justify the means could be, yeah, you take an eye, but I'm going to take your head. I think it's It's just a little I don't know how I got there. Um, oh, it's a lie. Okay. Sorry. Nothing with me Any other questions or thoughts in this chapter? Lord, how marvelous you are. How amazing. I I read and I'm in awe of how you 
are at work constantly to benefit, protect those who are your own, and not only David here, but the promise that was given to him and to us. And yet at the same time, even though you are overwhelming and overpowering, yet you give opportunity. You, you step back and allow us to respond. You, you place us in that garden with both trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet you warn us and you let us know. And then you let us decide. And Lord, you have made room for love. You have made room for growth. You have made it possible so that we can understand clearly who you are. We would not be able to see you if you forced your will on us. We would not be able to understand you if you manipulated us to do everything that you wanted us to do. But we understand the true nature and characteristics of who you are. Because when you make yourself known, you also allow us to decide what we will do with what we know. And God, that is terrifying sometimes. Because we can know the truth. We can stay blinded to what we know. Lord, may our eyes be open. May our hearts be tender so that when we are confronted with you, we will see clearly enough to surrender and follow after you. Lord, we pray for those who are in situations of struggle. I pray for my friend and his circumstance and the emotion that he's in. Lord, we thank you for your favor for extending yourself to us time and time again. Lord, bless the rest of this night, we pray. In Jesus' name.